presenting Ubaldi Reports. Hey everybody, this is John with Ubaldi Report, the one podcast that provides fact, not fiction, on issues facing America, whether internationally and globally. And today we're going to talk about kind of a combination of both, how what's going on around the world impacts America here at home. But first I want to introduce my two, co- my two co-hosts. One is Joe Bitts, former combat Marine, retired, was injured or wounded in Iraq, and um, Marine veteran Ray Krause. How are you doing both Ray and Joe? Great, John. How are you? Doing good. There's a lot to talk about. And the reason I wanted to do this one, we talked about Ukraine and what, whether we should be there or whether we shouldn't be there. And I've, when I posted something on TikTok and you know Instagram and others, I said we're going to do something on U.S. foreign policy. Yeah. What I wanted to talk about, and Ray kind of mentioned this because he's not exactly a big fan of what we're doing. I don't want to put words in your mouth. What we're doing in Ukraine. You're about right, though. But <laughs> Okay, but the point I want to get to is how did we get there? I mean, where are we at on foreign policy? And the reason I bring this up, because ever since the end of the Cold War, um, from 1946 to about 1992, until when Russia collapsed, um, or Soviet Union collapsed. The goal of the United States was containment. We were going to contain the Soviet Union or Russia in these areas, Eastern Europe, and they're not to expand elsewhere. Reagan took it to another level. We're going to contest areas like in Angola, Afghanistan, Kampuchea, which is now Cambodia. So we were going to contest and work with those um, fighters there. After the Cold War was over, the United States just wanted to focus on domestic, which makes it makes sense we can focus on a homeland but each president beginning with bill clinton and this is republicans and democrats came into office with no foreign policy vision except i'm going to repudiate the other my my predecessor and then when they get in there then they have to jump through hurdles and get kicking into screaming you had bill clinton got pushed in, into the balkans you had um eight George H. I mean George W. Bush because of 9/11, and then the Obama and Trump were the tra- tailors off of that. So, John, where did it go from like in the timeline? Where did it go from like us not cool with Russia, and then all of a sudden, hey, Middle East, we don't like you now, and kind of almost like Russia went to the like, the wayside, like we weren't really bothering them, and then <clears throat> maybe coming into like the Trump era. That's when he started kind of, or actually, I would say more at the end of the Obama era is when they started intermingling the Russia stuff. And now it's back to Russia, where the whole Middle East is kind of like on on back on the back burner right now. So well, when the Cold War was over, and then I'm not trying to put the, the onus on Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton came in when he had to focus at home because Russia now was no longer the threat that they once were during the Cold War. They got pushed off to the backboard, and the United States emerged at the end of the Cold War as the only hemogenic power, meaning we were the, glo- the sole superpower that, that had the ability militarily, economically, politically, and, um, and socioeconomics and everything. Nobody had the power that the United States did. Yeah. Even right now, the United States still is the only country in the world that can put troops in any part of the globe at any time and sustain them. So we went through the 90s, and then Russia went through an upheaval. You had Boris Yeltsin there, and they had a turbulent um, 
transition from Soviet from the communism or so, that communistic socialism to somewhat of a democracy or market forces, but they didn't really really go that way. They'd never really known that mm -hmm. because of the full the seventy plus years of communism in the Soviet Union. Then Putin got not Putin. Yeltsin was just this old guy, kind of big, burly guy, kind of an alcoholic, and he had a lot of issues. Well, he brings Bra Vladimir Putin in as his number two, All, much like Adolf Hitler was brought in by, I think it was Hindenburg, as his number two. Mm -hmm. Then Hindenburg dies, but here you had Putin gets out, then uh, uh, not Putin gets out, Yeltsin gets out, then Putin comes in. And then he became the strong man that we're dealing with now. And he believed, last point, that the greatest tragedy of the 20th, 20th century was the destruction and dismemberment and the collapse of the Soviet Union. And he's trying to resurrect it. And he blames the West, and he best definitely blames the United States mm -hmm. for a lot of these problems. You got so a question? Beach Baby 226 said, didn't it seem that Gorbachev was trying to change the culture? Happy birthday, Beach Baby. Hey, happy birthday. <laughs> but what Gorbachev was trying to do, he wasn't trying, he was changing the culture of communism. He didn't want to end communism. He just wanted to change how things were being done. And I think the problem that he never saw is once you open that, bo that Pandora's box with glasnost and perestroika, he never understood how deep the corruption went. Like if you're sending grain or sending a shipment, there was corruption all the way through the system. So they lied about what was being reported. Let's say we're, put, we're producing 100 uh, bushels of wheat when we're only producing 50 bushels of wheat, but we're still marking it down as 100. So there was massive amounts of corruption, and Putin felt that Russia, now proper, was humiliated by the West. And he still believes that after the end of the Cold War, when we— um, reemerged when Germany unified, he thought, he said, he still believes that there was a promise made that NATO wouldn't expand eastward. But everybody was there, including James Baker, who was Secretary of State under George H.W. Bush. He said there was no agreement made like that. There was nothing like that. This is him making this up. So now we're at this point right now. John, uh, I just want us to pause for a second. I'm going to keep my eye on the timer. Check to just make sure that the the Wi-Fi, you're on our Wi-Fi because you're coming in a little bit glitchy. On um, Well, how do I check that? Just make sure you're on our Wi-Fi. Yeah. Settings, come on more, over more. Settings. Well, I never have it on. Yeah. Frontier, yeah. it'll it'll kick in. Okay. Give it a few seconds. Okay, there we All go. All right. So before we go back into the broadcast, which I'm gonna have Gloria edit this out, hopefully. Um. Just make sure you're on the Wi-Fi every no, time you. You got it. Ready. Ready. Ready, three, two, go back so in. So Vladimir Putin believes that that was the greatest strategic um, debacle was the, um, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And what he's trying to do now 
I mean, he's he was everybody focuses on he was a KGB agent, which he was in East Germany, but he was never there in Russia itself. So what he's trying to do is resurrect Russia back to like what Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, and other Russian czars did is that's why he's going into Ukraine. He looks at Ukraine as a part of Russia, mm-hmm. not a separate entity, and the Ukrainians see it otherwise. But the, the point that I want to get with U.S. foreign policy is we have a lot of it's misconceived. It's kind of inconsistent. And without a president coming in and giving their vision where we want to go. So what you were talking about, Ray, about Ukraine, I know you're um, not a big fond of what our policy is. How did we get to this point? Because had Joe Biden been a lot stronger, let's say when he first came into office, he didn't end the Keystone XL. He didn't make he didn't take us off or take us from energy independence to less energy independent. We had the Afghan debacle. Then when Russia hacked into our energy grid, he didn't he just said, don't do this anymore. But then we didn't we take out the XL pipeline. Yeah, I mentioned yeah, the XL yes, pipeline. Okay. I mentioned all this. So the point I'm getting at is in October, it was like September, October, President Biden came out with his national security strategy. And there were many experts, and one of them is Anthony Cordesman from the Center for Strategic and National Studies. And he said it was very thin and very vague. So the question is, like, take it right now. What are our threats? Is it it's Russia, obviously. China's the big threat. But okay, yeah. with China... What is China? Is China a threat? Or as Joe Biden keeps saying, is China a competitor? So if that's the case, how do we align that? Then when he comes to defense policies, he mentions these threats. Well, how do you realign the budget to meet these threats? Now, I talked to a senior commander at, um, at the base at MacDill Air Force Base, and he had mentioned and he's seen the, 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 um, the unclassified version, and usually there's more meet in the classified version and he said it was very it was one of the most thinnest national security and in the strategic level classified so how is the budget going to be around now this one um, analyst anthony cordesman stated you take the four branches army navy air force and marines everyone crafts a budget that meets the best needs of their service not what's be- not what is the national security strategy that we take all our force all our branches and they craft a budget that meets how their services factors in to the national security strategy right so these are the things and then the two biggest things that i don't want to spend too much time on is there's two things that they the, the president didn't talk about in his national security brief that i always bring up one is our national debt now admiral mike mullen who was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff up until about, I think, 2012. And he, when he was asked, what is our greatest national security threat? And he said our national debt. And he elaborated even further because if we can't, if we're so indebted, that means we can't rebuild the, mo- the military. We can't modernize the military. We're not prepared for crisis. Right. Now, right now, because we're moving our weapons um, backstock or stockpile, to Ukraine, we're not backfilling. And the same um, think tank said that they've, they war-gamed it. And let's say we got into a war with China or anybody else. Within three weeks, we're out. So how are you backfilling this? And, and I think that's in part of why I have a, a heavily disagreement on 
A, why we're sending funds to the Ukraine. We just got out of a 20-year war in the Middle East. We left our equipment there. Correct. We did all this stuff that I would say what I would call shooting yourself in the foot. And there's no game plan. It's We're just going to you know, shove money over there. We've seen time and time again on, on the corruption in, inside the Ukrainian government. Um, we've seen the issues that Ukraine as a country has. Now, as a person who lives in the United States, Ukraine has freedom, we have freedom, and I get that. And I, I, I understand and I have sympathy with it. But if there's no game plan, why are we sending see, so much money? But see, that's the, the point. That's the point. I do agree with President Biden arming the Ukrainians. Where I fault President Biden, did we have to get to this point? Meaning, had you been tougher on the world stage and yep. you had a vision, like in this national security strategy, he talks about we're going to work with our allies. Well, how is that being done? Now, you came in as the most experienced foreign policy president, and his team was the most experienced since Truman. Mm-hmm. And that was the, how the media built him up. But look what you've got. We're on the prepices of two world wars, one with Russia, a potential war with China. You've got Iran. All these things are playing in, and you were supposed to build um, relationships with our allies, which you believed were marginalized by President Donald Trump. But right now, we're sending over $14 billion, well, No, I'm sorry, $114 billion to Ukraine. The next biggest country after us for number two is Britain. At number t- at four billion, so where's the French and the Germans? Why aren't? What are you doing to get our allies? And what's on, the plan what's of, the, of of that what money? What is the strategy of that money being sent over? What is the strategy that we said? Okay, that hundred and fourteen billion dollars is going to be used for this. We see because we've <clears> been watching it on the news. That city of Bakhmut's been some heavy heavy fighting. There's a lot of casualties. Is that okay? $114 billion is going to go to this because now we have to counter siege. But okay, that's something that we can actually Okay, but like here's the other about. point. If President Biden keeps mentioning that the reason why inflation is high and gas prices are high is because the Putin gas hike and, and Vladimir Putin. But then if that's the case, what are you doing to end the conflict? What is your strategy? But ducktailing on the two things I mentioned earlier is our debt. We have to get the debt down. And then the second thing I want to focus on, which to me is a great impact on national security, is our education. Mm-hmm. And I just want to touch on that a little bit. When you go to like Baltimore, Chicago, and across the country, 80% of the African-American kids and Hispanic kids can't do math or English to grade level. And our numbers for across the board are down. And because the COVID lockdown, which we're finding out now, from the FBI, Christopher Ray, in an interview with Brett Baer, that it, he's emphatically stated it came from a leak out of a, a lab. So what are we doing to push back on China? What is our ultimate strategy? How do we factor in all elements of national power, our economic power? Like an example, in the mid-'90s, the Republicans supported it, and Bill Clinton signed it. We had an agency inside the State Department. It was like a PR agency mm-hmm. that would do like Radio Free America or Radio Free Europe inside the Eastern Bloc countries who were under communism and um, in Russia. We got rid of it. So in 2002, there was an earthquake in Iran. 
the Iranians reluctantly allowed American military to bring humanitarian supplies. Why didn't we uh, push something through the Iranian government? Look what I mean to the Iranian people. This is what we're doing, like in Ukraine. Why are if we're arming the Ukrainians? Why aren't we using our our huge amount of communications and information that we can push out, pushing things into Russia to turn the Russian people around like we did during the Cold War? Yeah, I mean, if you could sway an election due to, like, all this social media propaganda, we could do the same thing in, but a, I mean, in a war. But the point is you've got families in Russia. You may not get the right news because it's state-sponsored. We can be pushing, hey, you guys are invading Ukraine. They didn't do anything. Look how many people died, Russian right. soldiers. These are conscript. These are just low-level um, civilians are not being treated well by Russia. Most of them are, have been criminals. So the, the crux that I'm trying to get to is now we're getting close to, um, well, getting close. We're, we're gearing up for the 2024 election. What is the national security, what is the foreign policy vision of Republicans? What is the foreign policy vision of um, Joe Biden? What is he trying to convey? Well, I mean, it's going to look like that Trump's going to have a little bit more of a foreign policy agenda going into the 2024 than anybody else. Now, with Donald Trump, but he's just as it goes to Ukraine, he's on the camp more of Joe. Now, Ron DeSantis may be a presidential camp a candidate. We'll don't know until the he took a middle ground. He's he supports arming the Ukrainians, but then he also went into Ray's camp where he wants oversight, not just a blank check. Yeah, right. But we need our leaders to get what is our vision. And the national security, it's like, in the, it's like in the military. Everybody knows what the what the strategy is, and everybody focuses their, their unit on that strategy. Where are we at in foreign policy? We've just, we can't lump going from one crisis to another. And then we failed like when President Obama had the Arabic Spring. We were so far behind the power curve. Our intelligence app is so, so politicized. Our State Department has got individuals there that, yeah, they come out of the Ivy League, but they haven't done anything. Mm -hmm. We've got leaders that like are like Joe Biden. I mean, you're the expert, but look at the failures. You had um, Afghanistan. You've got um, the Ukraine, potential conflict with China. You're supposed to be the foreign policy expert, but show me where you succeeded on anything on foreign policy. And he's been in office for 50 years, so he's had other votes that, well, you know, were crucial during conflicts back That's prior. a good – but, see, that's a good point. When he ran in 2020, I wrote many articles on this, exactly what you said. He was either chairman or ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He came into the Senate in 1973. So at the State of the Union address, Joe Biden mentioned that um, – he wanted to do things with China, and I can do this, and we're bringing jobs back, and he, everybody clapped. But my question is, you supported every initiative with China, including uh, most favored nation status, and I think it was 2000, or I think it was maybe a little earlier, but around that time for Bill Clinton. But you support, so now we're supposed to believe you're going to do this. Now, let's say what Joe mentioned with the Middle East. Joe Biden voted against the, the first Gulf War, comes back and supported the um, 
the removal of Saddam Hussein before we went into Iraq the first time. This is under Bill Clinton at the tail end of his administration. Then you supported the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Then you were against the surge. Then you all of a sudden, I'm against the war in Afghanistan. And you were flip-flopping back and forth. So what, what, the question the media should have asked, where do, we, where do you stand? How do we believe you when you were voted for one to go to war, but then when things didn't work out right, you turned your back on them? Mm -hmm. So there's, the media needs to be consistent. And then our, because I'm kind of putting a book together that kind of combinates all this. But when our leaders get up in front of the Capitol Hill on the Senate and House Foreign Relations and Armed Services Committee, they need to ask poignant questions and not ask partisan questions to make their side look good and make the other side look bad. We need to double down and ask their vision. And then when their military commanders get up on Capitol Hill, they swear an oath. To get, they're going to give their best military advice. They're not supposed to regurgitate the talking points of the administration unless they agree with it. If Congress or the senators are asking their advice, what is your advice? Is this going to work? Is this not going to work? And I don't want to hear, well, this person didn't know. That's your time to say, I agree with what we're doing. This is why. And we need to reform how our military works. Our military budget is bloated. We need to get back to war fighting. Like it's the mission of the military or the Department of Defense is protect the homeland and deter war. I hate to be crass about this, but that means our job is to kill the enemies. Right. Be prepared to kill the enemies of the United States. It's not supposed to be in woke policies. It's not supposed to give kumbaya moments. It's supposed to protect and defend. And we're not prepared. No. We don't have the weapons material. Our that same think tank that I mentioned, the Center for Strategic International Studies, Seth um, Jones, stated that our um, industrial base is not prepared for a conflict. We have too much of our supply chain overseas. It would have to be – well, yeah, it, the supplies are overseas, and that's the first problem. But then the Defense Act would have to be enacted to even start remotely getting anything – running just to get it to the front line so we would be we already are behind the eight ball we are and, and we need and to that's, and even i don't know if you saw a headline today that i saw but a general who i can't remember his name right now said, came out and said that we have to be prepared for a main uh mainland attack from china if they get into this war well and we, but there was an exercise please god <laughs> no, but, but are, are we ready for it? But there was. Uh, but I know our arsenal, our our actual military is not ready for it. But I think the Americans are ready for it. But see, there was an exercise done by the Center for Strategic International Studies, and the reason I like that because they just—they're just a bipartisan. They don't play the politics. Mm -hmm. They just get these are facts, and they came out with an exercise. If we went to war with China over North over Taiwan, and they found out that. We would win, but it would be a pyrrhic victory. We would win such a bloody win that they factored in we would lose two aircraft carriers and a bunch of capital ships, and we would lose close to 10,000 troops, which would set us back about um, um, would set us back about um, 30, 40 years because we're not prepared. Right. And there was an exercise by a Marine general. And a retired Marine general, retired Navy admiral, back in 2021, they took the all the the um, collisions with Navy ships. They wanted to see if it was 
just a coincidence or something deeper. And they found out that we're not prepared. Our training is not up to par. We've cut back some things. And one Navy retired chief said, we're great when it comes to diversity training. We're not so good about the war fighting. Are we prepared for the conflict? Now, George Washington, in a joint session of the Congress, stated the surest way to preserve peace is to prepare for war. And we have history is ripe just in our own country. We weren't ready for World War I. We weren't ready for World War II. We definitely weren't ready for Korea. And we lost thousands of troops in each of these because we were ill-prepared and not and we had ample time to prepare, right? And we didn't. Yeah, and that and that's where I have the concern now. When when that graph that I showed you was presented on I the, saw on the news, and so I took that graph that from came the news, from that from that Center, uh, Center for Strategic or National yeah, Studies. Yeah, and when I saw that, and I and you see the production lead time to know how far behind, and if we ever have to make an immediate response. We're just not – we don't have – We have the, to dump money into the industrial and you know, that's complex the, But see, but that's the point that Anthony, Cord- I mean, Anthony Cordeson made when he analyzed President Biden's um, defense budget. He said, okay, we're going to have to add money into the defense budget. Well, how much is that going to be? And I've always said we're, we're, we're spending things on the military, and people need to understand I want a strong military. Mm-hmm. All of us have been there. Yep. Joe and me have been in combat. So if we're not prepared, we're going to pay a price. Right. So, and I tell, I would tell Republicans who don't want to cut the fence, you have to reform the Pentagon. We've got, we got a bloated budget. We're spending on things. Each service does their own thing. And we can be, are we better prepared for this conflict? Could we use those resources like the commissary as an example? In today's world and and inside the United States, do we need a commissary system? Or outside McDill and most major bases, there's all these all these uh, supermarkets. There's a super Walmart, a super Target, Costco, Sam's Club, and these retailers would give the military independence, let's say a 10% discount. So do we need these? That no, I mean, even with the even with the uh, welfare system now, you could probably get an EBT card for the military, so because you know you're not getting paid as much as everybody else. But here's an example. Reform that. But here's an example. Over the last thirty years, the military's wasted about seventy-five, almost to a hundred billion dollars on weapon systems that don't work. Yep. It was like they spent three or four billion. Oh, that doesn't work. Let's move on. We can't do this, like the Zumwalt class destroyers the most modern destroyers, we were supposed to get 30. We only got like five. Because they're so expensive. They get so expensive. Yeah. We have to whittle that down. We have to get more productive with the money we use. But we also have to channel all elements of national power. We have to tell our business community, you're not doing business in China. And there's got to be a price. But we have to look at our finances. Like the, the CBO met with the Republicans and said the debt – is far greater than we anticipated. But we also have to reform our national debt. That means reform spending, not just whack-a-mole or leave certain things off the table. We're going to have to look at every, and that means entitlement programs. That eats up 60% of the budget. It has to be reformed so it's, it's, it's viable for our children's, our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren for the next generations to come. So... Then we look at education. 
I mean, Randy Weingarten, she's the um, president of the second largest teachers union. She's on Capitol Hill screaming up like a rant. But she's responsible for the school closures. She's responsible for working with the CDC. We've got ample evidence to show that, to keep schools locked down, to keep kids masked up. And then when they did the national educational assessment that came out in October of last year, so we, we regressed 30 years in math and English. And then you've got the city of Baltimore, 24 schools. Not one kid can pass um, the grade level for um, math. Chicago, I mean, Illinois, there was like 56. Can we go touch on Chicago just real quick? Yeah, because let's go. Um, so with Lori Lightfoot kind of being out of the race now, right? She's kicked to the curb like yesterday. Okay, now, oh, do we have, is it just, did she get replaced by another Democrat or are there? No, is, it's all Democrats running. Okay, so because I saw, I saw like independent no, or something. The, 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 good luck. No Republican or independent's going to make it in that But city. is there anybody that's going to just like maybe like come in and kind of like shake it up or... No, I just think, I mean, the guy who, who got the most votes, I think is like 32%, and then the number two guy got 17. Uh, Russell Johnson, I think his name is. And, I, God, I can't remember the guy who won, the Kloss or Kloss, but he was the former president of the uh, Chicago uh, school system. Okay. And Russell Johnson used to be a teacher. Now he's a strong, but he gets strong backing from the teachers' union. He wants to raise massive amounts of taxes. He's just going to be another – Lori Lightfoot 2.0. Okay. But Chicago hasn't had a Republican governor, I mean, a Republican mayor, or anybody else but a Democrat in 92 years. Okay. Going back to 1931. Well, I would think that just like kind of someone's going to come in and kind of like adjust it from. The, 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 they would have to do a major retrenchment. One of the big issues is crime, but Governor Pitzer Pitzer signed a bill that. that liberalized or made it loose when it comes to bail reform. So they got deeper problems. They got a massive budget debt for the city. The school board, the school district is is massively underwater for budget. And then they also have 80% of their children can't read or do math to grade level. And 75% are African-American. Mm -hmm. So they've got a lot of problems they're going to have to address. Uh, Beach Baby 226 said, let's let teachers get back to teaching the basics to help children succeed. I would I agree. agree with her, yeah. and I would like to pay teachers more, and I would like to get com success competent teachers there because once you get tenured, there's no, there's no system in America where you're tenured after a couple of years, whatever the, the tenure system is. But the, the biggest problem is the bureaucracy that hampers money flowing down to teachers. Like Randy Weingarten, she makes $500,000 a year. Now, she was screaming up in front of the Supreme Court, oh, this is fair. We got to um, give these we gotta forgive these student loans. But what people don't know is the Democrats, when they passed the Affordable Care Act, also passed the Student Affordability Act of 2009, which was a rider attached to the Affo Affordable Care Act, which nationalized the student loan program, which was a problem then. And it just put it on steroids. So you have colleges massively raising tuition, but they know that the government's going to back it and students want um, to go to school. So they're absolved of it. So we're not fixing the crux of the problem. This is going to exacerbate it. And the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, said it would cost upwards to $500 billion if they did this. And that would just throw inflation sky. Makes inflation get worse. 
So, John, how can they go ahead and get a hold of you if they need to? Well, they can, and there's a, this was a lot, but you can get a hold of us by going to ubaldireports at gmail.com or going to all our streaming sites on the, where the podcast is streamed online. You can go to TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, obviously TikTok, and you can check us out there. All right. So, everybody, have a good one. Uh, if you want to hear Ray and I, we're going to be on All American Gunslingers uh, podcast. Yeah, you can also catch us on TikTok at All American Gunslingers and all things social media, All American Gunslingers. And we will talk to you guys soon. And keep following Ubaldi Reports. We're always going to go live at when on Wednesday, 7.30 Eastern Standard Time. That's 7.30 Eastern Standard Time. So keep checking out Ubaldi Reports. Until next time, keep following Ubaldi Reports.